You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Our guest today is Michael Pillsbury who is a senior fellow and the director of the Center for Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute. He is a distinguished defense policy advisor, former high-ranking government official, and author of numerous books and reports on China. During the Reagan administration, Pillsbury was assistant undersecretary of defense for policy planning and was responsible for the implementation of the program of covert aid known as the Reagan Doctrine. In 1975 and 76, while an analyst at the RAND Corporation, Pillsbury published articles in foreign policy and international security recommending that the United States establish intelligence and military ties with China. The proposal, publicly commended by Ronald Reagan, Henry Kissinger, and James Schlesinger, later became U.S. policy during the Carter and Reagan administrations. Pillsbury also served on the staff of four U.S. Senate committees from 1978 to 1984 and 1986 to 1991. As a staff member, Pillsbury drafted the Senate Labor Committee version of the legislation that enacted the U.S. Institute of Peace in 1984, and he also assisted in drafting legislation to create the National Endowment for Democracy and the Annual Report for DOD Report on Chinese Military Power. Michael Pillsbury was educated at Stanford University, where he received a BA in History, and he received his MA and PhD at Columbia University, when for whatever reason he changed from history to political science. Pillsbury is also the author of China Debates, The Future Security Environment, came out in 2000, and the editor of Chinese Views of Future Warfare, which was released in 1998. He's here today to talk about his newest book, the 100-Year Marathon, China's secret strategy to replace America as a global superpower. Michael, thank you for taking the time to join us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you. So the title of your book is a reference of a plan by the Chinese to, t- to take over as a world superpower in 2049. That's where the 100 years comes from, correct? Yes. It, would you say it's fair to say that this book was written as a bit of a warning to the U.S. policymaker and to the American people, it, it comes across as a bit hawkish. But to, to, you know, in full disclosure, you used to be pro-engagement with China. I believe you used the term panda hugger. Yes, I'm still pro-engagement. The, the purpose of the book is really to show everybody the history from 1969 on to our assumptions that turned out to be mistaken 
about how if we engage with China, provided science and technology, investment, trade, that that would cause them to become a democracy, a free market economy, and cooperate with, with us all over the world. Uh, that didn't work out. So I'm trying to expose the original assumptions that started our engagement with China. And then I'm calling for a smarter kind of engagement in which we shape them toward what we originally wanted 40 years ago, which is a democratic free market China that is cooperative with us. Right now, we don't have that. Your, your book itself is not based on academic research necessarily on your side, but a lot of it is based on 40 plus years, not to age you, but 40 plus years of direct engagement with Chinese officials. Well, it's true. When I, I knew when I got the idea of doing the book that I would have to use classified evidence of three different kinds from the U.S. government. The first kind of classified evidence was the defectors who told us so much about Chinese secret strategy toward us and toward the world. Then I, had, I knew I had to get the presidential decision documents that are also secret or top secret that have laid the framework for our relationship with China. And the third area of classified information I knew I had to get was my own writings and studies by myself and others on what we thought China was really up to. And I didn't want to go into exile. I didn't want to be arrested for leaking. <laughs> so I had to submit all this evidence to for security review at FBI, CIA, and the Pentagon. Uh, and frankly, the fact that it was approved was very good news for me and I think is what makes the book because it's the evidence that the public does not have about what's been going on in U.S.-China relations and how China thinks, frankly, about strategy. Because a lot of this was written actually for the CIA. Well, the former CIA director says on the back of the book that uh, this Pillsbury did this work for CIA and he got an exceptional performance award from the CIA director. So that's what the former director says. I myself don't address that in the book. It's kind of a mystery where this all came from. Understood. Um, I, I, I used to teach uh, Cold War history, and a lot of times we're talking about the American-Chinese relationship. The word misunderstanding pops up again and again. And there's always conversations about the Chinese and the Americans talk past each other because they're coming from very different positions. The Chinese have this ancient society that goes back thousands of years. And of course, the United States is the upstart nation. You see this readily in the, the, the lead up to Chinese involvement in the Korean War. And then later when Eisenhower threatened China with nuclear weapons in 1953. Your book really addresses some of these issues, especially with regards to language. Can you talk a little bit about the misunderstandings behind the ways the Chinese language causes so many problems for Americans? Yes, it's often a major decision by an interpreter how to interpret what the meaning of certain words is when there's no equivalent in English for that, for that uh, what they call semantic slice of reality. And sometimes I myself have been caught up in this because I translated for Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and some other senior officials in, in both in the Pentagon and in Beijing where the Chinese say something and it's not quite clear how I should translate the, the tone, shall we say. Is it a hostile statement? Is it, is it a friendly statement? And sometimes only context or swapping ideas with other interpreters can tell us how to translate. This is a major source of misperceptions, especially on this strange word the Chinese use called ba, uh, ba in the fourth tone, 
we have a hell of a time translating. The Chinese offered the word hegemon, or leader. But actually we found out later that ba means a tyrant, world tyrant. And this is what they've been saying about us for quite some time. So even how to define a word in Chinese ends up having fairly important political consequences. So American policymakers perceived Ba as saying, you're the leader, you're, you, know, you are the superpower now, when in essence they were calling us tyrants. That's right. And we found out later on, in fact, it, the Chinese have written an article about this book, The 100-Year Marathon. If they want to translate my book title in kind of a hostile way, they say Michael Pillsbury claims we Chinese want to become a Ba in the sense of replacing America. Well, that means I'd be saying China wants to become the world tyrant. And I'm not really saying that. I'm saying world leader. Mm -hmm. So this term ba has been causing trouble for almost four decades. When, when were you first pulled on to working in the China question? You talk about in your book, it goes back as far as the late 1960s, when you first uh, came face to face with some Soviet defectors that were talking about China. Yes, I got to China and the study of the Chinese language for two years and even getting a PhD in the field. I came to it through the Soviet Union. We were trying to understand Soviet strategy toward America and again and again China came up. So I realized that there was a sort of a gap uh, in the study of China in our government. Everybody in those days was studying the Soviet Union and nobody was studying China. Yet the Soviets seemed to be obsessed with China and the idea that America might form a relationship with China to undermine the Soviet Union. That's how this whole story started in 1969 or so. When, when Americans think about China, or if they do think about China, uh, you know, they may think about Mao or even a little more educated, Deng Xiaoping or Zhou Enlai, how about these civilian leaders that are making supposedly making policy decisions. But you argue in the book that really the military is the, head, the big player in making policy decisions, even things that are non-military, like the one-child policy that had been in China for some time, opening relationship with the United States, even energy policy, seems to be heavily uh, regulated, or at least uh, the decision-making seems to be in the hands of the military leadership rather than the civilian leadership. Yes, you've got that exactly right. We have a system of laws and traditions that our military, uh, who wear uniforms, cannot be in political activities, they can't go out and raise funds for presidential candidates, and they don't get out of their lanes and come over and advise on tax reform or uh, birth control, whether abortion is better or not, uh, things like that. They work on military issues and that's it. In China, because of their revolutionary tradition, the military is expected to play a much broader role so the one-child policy, for example, was actually invented and pushed on the leadership who accepted it by a rocket scientist using algorithms that had been drawn from the field of rocket science to project demography and why there'd be five billion Chinese if we didn't go over to a one-child policy. Same thing happened in foreign policy. Their opening up to America actually began with four generals advising uh, Chairman Mao what to do in the foreign policy area. Their defense uh, experts sometimes even become foreign minister. Their most famous foreign minister today uh, was Major, was General Chun Yi. Uh, General Chun was a Revolutionary War hero and 
served many years as their foreign minister and, in fact, was the architect of the opening to America. Speaking of which, if we take a little bit of step back historically, uh, most of us in the United States learn in middle school or certainly high school about Kissinger and Nixon going to China and this big opening and ping-pong diplomacy and later most favored nation status. You argue in the book that the perception that we opened ourselves to China is wrong, that China is really the one that reached out to the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that? This is one of the biggest misunderstandings we have of China. We like to tell ourselves, and it was first pushed by uh, President Nixon in his memoirs and Henry Kissinger in his first four books, that the United States opened up China. China was, China's portrayed as kind of an angry, backward, poor country that we had to lure out of its shell with various goodies so that they would join the world order and be our friends. That's really our narrative. And the reason I wrote this book is to counter that narrative and suggest evidence from the Chinese side as well as from our own secret archives why it's simply not true. This was a Chinese initiative from the beginning. And I have a new ally in my book. Uh, Henry Kissinger has now confessed that this is more or less true. Well, the implications of that are pretty startling, is that this is, you know, the Chinese weren't pulled into this relation with the United States. They actually, this is part of their broader plan with the United States. Well, it's the heart of this book. The reason I'm saying it's a secret strategy to win the 100-year marathon is I found Chinese writings that used to be secret inside China, known only to a few people, where they laid out in 1955 the goal of passing America in 50 to 75 years, and that this would be China's greatest contribution to the human race, to surpass America. So the opening to the United States in the 69 to 71 period, this is another uh, strategy they first debated, and then they went ahead and did it, <clears throat> to try to get American science and technology and trade and investment as part of their plan. It wasn't an American initiative to open up China and sort of bring them in the world. It was China reaching out to get what they wanted from us as part of a long-term plan. And so, so the Nixon administration is the one that initiated this from the American side. And, of course, the Ford, Carter, Reagan administration, all the way up through to the Obama administration, has fallen in line with this. I'd, li I'd like to ask you about two particular administrations that I found interesting uh, in your books. One was the Reagan period. And Reagan, of course, is the, the, the consummate Cold Warrior fighting against the Soviet Union. But Reagan his administration at least, seemed to be pretty extraordinarily open when it came to what we gave to the Chinese. Uh, you even say that Reagan let them look at DARPA, gave Chinese official tours of the most top secret defense technologies. Um, is this something that was because of Reagan's absolute uh, obsession with the Soviet Union, uh, or was this just naivete on, naivete on the part of Reagan? No, President Reagan, uh, who I worked for, was building on a foundation that went back to Nixon and then Ford and Jimmy Carter. Uh, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger authorized the providing of intelligence and radar warning technology and even wartime help uh, to the Chinese. I reveal this in the book and I have the documents where this whole thing began. Uh, declassified, put on the website for the 100-year marathon. Uh, Jimmy Carter built on what Nixon and Ford had done 
and really expanded the intelligence cooperation program. I tell the story insofar as it's uh, still restricted what can be said, but I tell a bit, little bit more about that story. So President Reagan was building on a foundation that really went back to about 1972 when he in 82 and 83 signed these classified decisions, which I also have on the website, where Reagan decided to actually sell weapons to China. This had not been done by uh, Nixon, Ford, and Carter. Reagan also committed a series of uh, directives to, to be given to other parts of the government outside the White House to start providing science and technology to China even more than Jimmy Carter had done. One of the interesting stories that's part of this, and you mentioned you work for Ronald Reagan, is uh, you had a hand, and our listeners would be very interested to know, uh, in policy toward Afghanistan. Uh, and most people don't understand there was a Chinese role in arming the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Can you talk a little bit about your role in that particular period in history? Well, don't forget, Vince, this is a book that's been through security review, and every word has to be very you know, accurately used, and I can't really deviate from the story. But I'm a, I was allowed to tell several stories that has to do with quoting the Washington Post, that China apparently sold as much as $2 billion worth of weapons to the United States for us to then give to the Afghan resistance. I, also, I tell this, that story. I also tell the story of how some people in CIA in various meetings we held in Pakistan wanted to go even further than just providing the rebels with weapons. Some wanted to use sniper rifles called buffalo guns in Kabul, Afghanistan to target and assassinate Soviet officers as they were, and officials as they were walking around the city. The Afghans asked for the buffalo guns and they wanted to do it. They wanted information about where they could find these targets. And we discussed this with the Chinese. Ultimately, CIA decided it was illegal. It's a violation of the executive order on assassination, so it was not done. Some Buffalo rifles may have been transferred, but not for the intentions that they originally had been, had been planned. The Chinese wanted to do this. There was a second topic I discussed very delicately in the book, that the idea of commando raids inside the Soviet Union, inside their borders, came up. The Afghans were very angry. Their country had been violated, occupied, uh, more than a million refugees. So they volunteered to go on commando raids inside the Soviet Union. This has never been done before in the Cold War. The Cold War is called the Cold War because this, this kind of thing was not going on. So this program started. They're very, very limited. And we discussed with the Chinese, how do you feel about this? Because the Soviets know that you're providing some of the weapons. They know you're involved in this program. How do you feel about commando raids inside Soviet territory? And I was surprised. They were all for it. They really wanted to bring down the Ba, the old hegemon. They thought the Soviet Ba was ruthless, uh, dangerous, and needed to be ended as a country as soon as possible. So commando raids inside to arm the ethnic minorities on the southern frontier of the Soviet Union, the Chinese thought was a great idea. Ultimately, we were the ones who pulled back and said, no, this is a bit too provocative. 
We're going to deal with the Bush administration because the, the 1989 events in Tiananmen Square are a key component here. But let, let's skip ahead a little bit to the Clinton administration because I thought that was interesting as well. You write that Clinton at first took more of a hardline approach toward the Chinese, actually coming out uh, and criticizing the Bush administration's response to Tiananmen Square. And it's, I thought it was interesting how China worked to change this perception, to change this approach by targeting very specific people within the Clinton administration to try to bring them over to the Chinese side. Well, this is one of the many stories I tell in the 100-year marathon about defectors who brought us information uh, often years after the event had happened. It was possible to reconstruct from one of the defectors' stories what had happened to President Clinton and his team, who frankly uh, were able to win against uh, President Bush and deny him a second term because they used this term, butchers of Beijing. George Bush coddled the butchers of Beijing, and I'm not going to do that. So when President Clinton got in, he started out, especially with Nancy Pelosi, on major sanctions on the Chinese, uh, not allowing them uh, best nation status. In exchange, they had to let prisoners out uh, they had to move toward democracy, just a whole series of really tough conditions. And this panicked the Chinese. They realized that in May of 1993, when Clinton had a big White House party for dissidents from the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre to come in the White House for the Dalai Lama to send his representative, this is like a nightmare for China that their old friend, the Americans, are now hosting their political enemies, and they realized they had to change something. So this defector told us the story of how they basically just read the newspapers, and they realized there were a lot of free trade advocates who, if they were simply empowered and encouraged, they would go stop the human rights wing of the Clinton administration. They would stop the Assistant Secretary of State for Asia, who had testified in favor of this tough, uh, these tough conditions, and they succeeded. Clinton undid the whole thing. The law was not implemented, and the conditions were dropped. So from 1993 on until today, we've not really put much pressure on China in terms of human rights, democracy, a free market, all these kinds of things that were on the table uh, in May of 1993. So the defector is basically saying this is a big success story for the Chinese long-term secret strategy of the 100-year marathon where they needed to prevent this kind of tough approach that Clinton wanted to take to soften up the Chinese Communist Party and let it move toward a democratic election system. Pretty effective use of open source intelligence. With, with yes. Targeting with the newspapers. You, you brought up defectors, and I think this is a really interesting part of your book. Um, talk about after Tiananmen Square, there are more and more defectors coming to the United States. And you, you have stories about two of them that you, uh, you call Mr. White and Ms. Green, uh, and, and just the differences in what they were bringing American intelligence. And I think for those out listening to this, uh, talking about the world of intelligence analysis and who do you believe and how do you take information, this is an interesting lesson because you had two people who potentially were uh, – as well connected within the Chinese government, giving you absolutely contradictory information and who you chose to listen, not you, but who you and everyone else <laughs> chose to listen to kind of uh, ha has a great lesson for the rest of us. 
Yes, well, there's a lot of spy versus spy in this book, and I try to lay out the successes of the Chinese intelligence service, which today we call for short, it's called the MSS, Ministry of State Security. It's just a Chinese way of saying KGB. They've had some pretty big successes against us, uh, and Miss Green was one of them. She's ultimately arrested by the FBI. Uh, they made some mistakes in her prosecution, so there was no real uh, criminal process. But the press learned at the time from the Department of Justice briefings that she had received almost $2 million from the FBI. She'd been an FBI asset for almost 20 years and that she had had a story to tell that she was personally close to China's president and that China's president was a big softy. He sort of loved America. He sang Elvis Presley songs in English. Um, he wanted to cooperate even more, that any sort of proliferation issues with Iran or North Korea were misunderstandings by lower level people. And so this story was taken in to President Reagan in the beginning, President Bush, President Clinton, on until her arrest in April of 2003, she was providing what we would call feeder material, disinformation to the Americans to kind of nurture our wishful thinking and hopes about China. You have to count this as a major success by the Chinese intelligence service. Worse than that, frankly, is the case of Mr. Jin. Mr. Larry Wutai Jin, or Jin Wudai, as they say in Chinese, served inside CIA, confessed at his trial, and before he supposedly asphyxiated himself with a black plastic garbage bag in his jail cell, he revealed that for at least 20 years he had passed classified documents, pretty much everything he got his hands on, to the Chinese. He was given high rank in the Chinese intelligence service. He was paid several million dollars, some of it in diamonds. So this case is another big success story, a penetration of somebody working on China inside CIA. But we've also had our successes, and I try to tell some of the American successes in this book as well. One, one thing I think is interesting with that is that you had somebody working for you, at least offering to work for you, you call Mr. White, that was actually providing you reality. And the Americans chose to listen to the Miss Green story and version of events versus the person actually telling you what was going on all along. Well, this gets back to your er earlier question, Vince, about misunderstandings. In any intelligence organization, you have to make judgments whether an agent is lying to you or not. And that usually means whether his reports are consistent with earlier reporting. If they're inconsistent, and he hasn't got a really good copy of a document or a photograph or something hard, you have to reject what he says. Mr. White had a story nobody believed, including me. It turned out later, 10 years later, he was right. He had uncanny knowledge about how China was going to begun, begin worshiping Confucius, was going to drop a lot of their old programs, what the Chinese plans were to win the 100-year marathon. But we didn't believe him, and only later, in 1999, when the famous B-2 accident took place, the B-2 accidental bombing of a Chinese embassy, only then did we begin to realize Mr. White's stories about just how anti-American the Chinese leadership really was. Only then did we begin to believe him. 
And that was another intelligence breakthrough when we got our hands on the minutes of a Politburo meeting with the top nine Chinese leaders trying to outdo themselves in saying anti-American things about this B-2 bombing accident. One thing I thought was especially interesting was the, the shift in Chinese policy, or at least there's an overt shift in Chinese policy after Tiananmen Square and the impact this had on their thinking. And this coupled with the fall of the Soviet Union seems to have really changed uh, their, well, the timetable doesn't change. It's always been 100 years, but changed how aggressive they were. Um, you, you start seeing ideas from China in 1990 that they're teaching the U.S. Is, is somehow historically tried to dominate China going all the way back to the Lincoln administration or the Polk administrations. Uh, and they really step up their efforts, things like their disinformation policy and their asymmetric military strategy we'll talk about in a second. How impactful was Tiananmen Square to Chinese thinking? It was it caused a panic attack, I would say, in China. They had been very tolerant in the 80s about the American model. Uh, a guy who became very famous later as an exile uh, was an insider working for the Politburo on political reform in the 80s and even talked about having a James Madison-style government with a, a sort of balance of power and different branches and the Communist Party sort of losing its overall control. In the 80s, so we really had no concept of how vigorous this debate had become and how American ideas were influencing the very top of the Chinese Communist leadership. When, when the massacre happened, the Chinese themselves, especially the hardliners, they realized how far the moderates had gone. And they decided the American model has to be made unattractive. We have to somehow demonize the American model so that no Chinese political debate will ever happen again like it did in the 80s, that, hey, why don't we move in that direction? So that's when this program began that they call, they have a great name for it, they call it the Patriotic Education Movement. It's a law. It says everybody in school and everybody goes on tours in China, tourists have to see certain things. They're called patriotic education bases. And these things go back to how other countries have really done terrible things to China. In our case, they say Abraham Lincoln was the first major American president who tried to contain China and block China from achieving its glory. It's all simply not true. It's a great exaggeration. Uh, if anything, the British and French and Japanese did bad things to China, but we did not. We were pretty much staying at home keeping to ourselves in those days. Uh, but this was designed to overcome the panic feelings they had, seeing just how far the students and some of their own leaders had been moving toward the democratic model. So one, one of the key components of this 100-year strategy uh, is what you call an asymmetric military strategy, the idea uh, that the United States military is going to continue to be the most powerful military in the world. And the Chinese aren't going to attempt to match the, the strength of the American military, you know, tank for tank and aircraft for aircraft. Instead, they're going to go after a strategy that you call the assassin's mace. Can you talk a little bit about this concept? Sure. I try to present this whole idea in the Chinese own words. I draw on their books and articles uh, to explain what they mean by assassin's mace. It's one of these untranslatable concepts the characters actually literally mean Sha is to kill, show is your hand, and Jin is a stick or a mace. So the concept is 
uh, as once explained to me by a Chinese general, I said, I really don't get it. What is this assassin's mace? It seems to be so important to you. He said, you know, it's James Bond. It's in the James Bond movies. I said, no, I don't know. He said, you know, whenever James Bond is in trouble, he's about to be killed, he has some kind of a magic weapon that he can pull out and it saves the day. It turns the forces on the opponent and he wins. That's what assassin's mace means. Cheap, small, a surprise, and a war-winning sort of concept or weapon that turns things around just at the final moment. So this would be something similar to defeating a multi-billion dollar aircraft carrier with a several hundred million dollar anti-ship missile, uh, or using a anti-satellite technology, or using cyber weapons, or using EMP, for instance, to, to, to knock out America's communication superiority. Yes, all of those concepts are attractive to the Chinese. In particular, uh, they know as well as we do that an aircraft carrier itself is so many billions of dollars. The aircraft on board are so many billions of dollars. There's 5,000 sailors uh, on board. So for a $5 million missile, or even two, to be sure you get the aircraft carrier, that's $10 million, takes out a $10 billion plus American weapon. They believe that is the assassin's mace concept and that it's kept as a surprise. I think they have a number of these uh, concepts and they're very excited about it. So I devoted a whole chapter to describing the assassin's mace strategy. Well, part of also the stories you read in the last couple of weeks in the newspaper about North Korean cyber, but this is just an anomaly because most of the time we're talking about Chinese cyber operations. Uh, recently, we indicted uh, several Chinese nationals, members of the, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, uh, for hacking American systems. Uh, and there, you know, you can read stories just about anywhere that the Chinese have been able to steal information about some top secret and incredibly technologically advanced military hardware, everything from the Patriot missile system to the Aegis radar to the F-18, V-22, little combat ship. My favorite, of course, is if you look at the new Chinese drone, it's a bolt-by-bolt <laughs> copy of the Predator. Um, cyber seems to be the wave of the future. Is this another example of this asymmetric warfare, the assassin's mace? Yes, the Chinese were attracted to cyber warfare at least 15 years ago. And they saw two things in it. They got the concept from us, from a lot of our more theoretical writings, and they were attracted to it for the first reason because it resonates with ancient Chinese history. In ancient Chinese history, obviously there's no computers, there's no internet, but there's a concept of psychological operations to influence the other side. And so they saw cyber as a way to get into the other side's way of thinking. The second thing they like about cyber is it's cheap. Instead of having to have a billion dollar weapon system, you have a, a building with a lot of guys in it, some women who are knowledgeable about how to penetrate the other side's uh, security. And it's sometimes cheap on the order of 100 to one, 1,000 to one. This is basic assassin's mace thinking. I'd like to talk about economic espionage because I think that's something that most Americans are familiar with, the fact that the Chinese have been consistently stealing non-military secrets, but secrets that are important for the global economy and for the American economic health. Is uh, this been or will it continue to be a key component of the broader strategy for the Chinese? Well, they don't leave their fingerprints on their cyber 
uh, theft operations. So we have to be careful in, in claiming that the Chinese government is doing this. We know often that the computers are physically inside China or someone's trying to make us think that the c computer servers and the attack is coming from China. But part of the Assassin's Maze concept is the secrecy of it. You don't necessarily know what's being done to you. So there's a large number of attacks that appear to be coming from China. But whether the Chinese government sponsors them or not, frankly, that question has slowed us down over the last 10 years in making allegations or indicting, uh, as you mentioned, indicting last year the five uh, PLA people for cyber hacking. We're a little uncertain if this is being directed by the president of China himself, or this is some sort of rogue unit, or this is companies who want to steal trade secrets. It's beginning to look more and more, according to the attorney general last year and the director of the FBI, it's beginning to appear to be directed by the government of China, at least at some level. We like to pretend that isn't President Xi Jinping himself. He must somehow not know. Uh, so obviously President Obama has brought this up on more than one occasion. But it's an intelligence gap to be able to know with certainty who is behind a cyber attack. You, as a pr main premise of this book, argue that it's almost a certainty at this point that the Chinese will surpass the American economy within the next, even within the decade, but certainly within the next two decades. Uh, there's a recent news story, and because you are the Chinese expert, I wanted to ask you about this, that within the last couple of days, this appeared in several different news organizations, that China had a pretty terrible economic year in 2014, that they had the worst level of economic growth they had seen in about 25 years. Is this a hiccup? Is this a bad year? Or is this a result of potential American or Western policy against the Chinese? I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding by us of the importance of having a growth rate of 7 or 7.5%. 7 that is slower than 10 or 11%, so it's a big slowdown. But it's a growth rate, frankly, we would kill for. It's triple our long-term growth rate. We're at 2.5% long-term for the last few decades. We had a, like a 5% in the last quarter of 2014. This quarter, we're back to 2.5% again, which all the economists know this is our long-term trajectory. If China has 7.5% and we sort of poor mouth that is no good and it's really low, we're forgetting. It's triple our yeah. growth rate. Over 10 or 20 years, this really adds up. That's the whole point of why Chinese economists have written, there's a couple of books out in China that say in 2030, we'll be double the American economy. In 2040 or 2049, we'll be triple. Right. You start th talking about a country that's three or four times stronger than you economically, it's going to be, have amazingly powerful consequences for us that today's media coverage that implies China's collapsing, these buildings aren't finished, and you know they have so much pollution, and they have no water in the north. These are accurate in the micro sense, but in the broad picture, they're missing. This is a country that used to be 10% the size of our economy. Now it's past us last month, according to the World Bank. Chinese economy is now the largest in the world by a little bit. They're still a lot poorer, because there's four times more Chinese than there are Americans. But the comparative growth rate of being three times or four times faster than America, this is what we've got to fix. This is what my book advocates in the last chapter. We've got to get more competitive ourselves and get our growth rate up. 
I, I'd like to end with, you just mentioned your last chapter, and you provide several steps uh, for how to fix these issues. And one of them jumped out at me because it seems to be something that uh, we may mm. be taking to heart. And that's your sixth step where you talk about building what you define as vertical coalitions. These would be people and countries around the Chinese that we could build as allies. Uh, has this been the policy of this so-called Asian pivot to reach out to people uh, in countries like Vietnam, Japan, the Philippines, South Korea, to create a bit of a buffer zone or a coalition in Asia against the Chinese? Yes, I think this began back under uh, President George W. Bush. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld used to speak of the hedge strategy, that what if things don't work out with China? Shouldn't we have a hedge? Um, the Deputy Secretary of State in 2005 gave a speech. His name is Bob Zellick. He said we shouldn't bet the ranch on things turning out well in China. So the hedge strategy was then adopted and ex basically expanded by the Obama administration and renamed into the pivot or the rebalance. And it's really listening more to the requests that come from China's neighbors. One of the most uh, surprising requests was from the Indians. The Indians told first Rumsfeld and then the Obama administration, you know, we don't know what's happening in the Indian Ocean. We don't have maritime patrol aircraft. We can't fly out a thousand miles and see what uh, Chinese ships are going through there carrying oil and, and natural gas to China. And we have no way of ever doing that ourselves. We said, do you know about the P-8? It's a maritime uh, reconnaissance aircraft. It's a, really a Boeing 737. It can have all kinds of sensors put into it. And it can have torpedoes in the back that are dropped out or anti-ship missiles. The Indians were almost giddy at the idea. And they ended up buying eight P-8s. Now they want four more. It's a multi-billion dollar program. This is India reaching out to us, but are also suggesting to them, hey, if you want to know what's going on in the Indian Ocean and be aware of China's vulnerable sea lines of communication, you need to buy this weapon system from us. So a surprise about all this is India has now become the largest purchaser of American weapons in the world. They've gone from almost zero to the largest purchaser in the world as part of our taking this uh, issue of China's neighbors more seriously. Now, the Chinese attack us and say, oh, you're just trying to hurt China. We say, no, 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 we just wanted to help our Indian friends. The book is called The 100-Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as a Global Superpower. The author is Michael Pillsbury. And no matter what side of this you come down on, no matter what side of the aisle you are politically, if you want a better understanding of what you see in the news every day about America's relations with China, this is a must-have book. It is available wherever, wherever great books are sold, including the Spy Museum retail store, spymuseum.org. Uh, we will certainly have several of them signed by Mr. <laughs> Pillsbury. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to come here. I know you have to run off to get back uh, to doing a lot more of promoting for this, this new book, uh, but we appreciate the time you've taken today to be here. Thank you. I love the Spy Museum. It's great for recruiting <laughs> the next generation. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.